Well, good morning, and welcome to this semester's series of Thursday morning sermons on God's response to our isms, or the short version, idols of our time. We thought this would be a cheery series to start your Thursday mornings and would get you bounding out of bed on these uh, mornings which will increasingly be dark and cold. Aren't you looking forward to that? (laughs) President Calvin Coolidge was a man of few words. He came home from church one day and his wife asked him what the sermon had been about. And he said, sin. She, who obviously knew how to handle him, said, "Uh, yes, dear, and what did the preacher say about sin? And Coolidge thought for a moment and said, he was against it. (laughs) And Jeremiah's tirade this morning is about idolatry. And what he has to say about idolatry is he is against it. But he says it with a little more passion than Calvin Coolidge. In fact, I don't know if you sensed it, but Jeremiah is boiling over with outrage. It really needs to be read in a place that is not quite such a polite chapel setting. Things like this. Be appalled, O heavens! Be shocked! Be utterly desolate! I'm sure that's the way he said it. He's saying, this idol worship is totally beyond comprehension. What do you think you're doing? He doesn't have words for it. I have two, I hope, shocking statements for you about idolatry this morning. Shocking statement number one, an idol is a good thing. You say, how can that be? You are awake. Excellent. The answer is because God created it. Did not God create everything and create everything good, right? So sex can be an idol. You don't often hear that word in chapel on a Thursday morning. But before it was an idol, it was a good creation of God. Materialism can be an idol. But whose idea was it to have a material universe in the first place? Workaholism is an idol, although I see none of my colleagues pick that one to preach about. (laughs) But work itself was not introduced to the world after the fall, but before the the fall as part of the good creation. You see where I'm going, right? And what makes these things idols, of course, is what we have done with them. All of these things, like everything in creation, were meant by God for our blessing, for life and joy to us and through us to the whole world. But what we have done is removed them from under the Lordship of God, put them on a pedestal and made them into mini-gods. We've given them an importance and a significance in our lives that, frankly, they were not created to have. And note this, that they're not able to bear. If you like, we are putting Saul's armor on David and he can't carry the weight. David is a great shepherd boy, but he is a terrible knight in shining armor. And why is it we do this thing with God's creation? Jeremiah pinpoints the problem in verse 20. 
Long ago you broke your yoke, you burst your bonds, and you said, I will not serve. That's what this is about. An attitude I don't need to tell you goes way back to Genesis 3. But as Bob Dylan once sang, and some of us remember it, you got to serve someone. It's just the way that we were made. And if we will not worship and serve our Creator, we will find an idol to serve. And we kind of like that because an idol is less demanding than God is. And idols make wonderful promises. I will make you happy. I will solve your problems. I will give your life meaning and purpose, apparently without any strings attached. Ah, that's great. And of course, because they only have limited power, they are easier to control and certainly easier to bend to our will than Almighty God. The trouble is that our idols are not capable of keeping their promises, and in the end they will turn on us and destroy us. As Jeremiah says, we went after worthless things and we became worthless ourselves. We become like the things that we worship, which is why we are made to worship God. In other words, if we're looking to David wearing Saul's armor to win our battles, Goliath and the Philistines will overwhelm us. So look out. And Jeremiah has this wonderful image of water. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns, that can hold no water. In that culture, they would build big water tanks to catch water during the rainy season so that they would have water in times of drought. So the idea of a leaky cistern is an absolute disaster. If your water leaks out, you're going to die. And says Jeremiah, that's what idols are. They offer refreshment, but he says, in time of their trouble, you look around, they're not going to be there. They will have taken off. And the folly is that the water in the living water and the water in the cistern is the same water. But one is a permanent, reliable source, the other is uncertain and likely to leak away. Let's work an example of an idol we may be tempted by in seminary because, surprise, surprise, we're not immune just because we're at Wycliffe College. Do you know what an iatrogenic disease is? Some of you do. It's a disease that you catch in hospital. Get my drift? So you go to hospital because you have, let's say, appendicitis, and while you are there, you catch C. difficile. And you would never have got that unless you had gone to the hospital which was supposed to make you better. You get the point, don't you? And in the same way there are idolatries that are temptations to us in seminary and other religious places. There are many examples, you will find others in the next few years. But here's just one. The academic study of theology is a good thing, a gift of God. It's a thing to love, to revel in, to find delight in. How could it possibly become an idol? The same way anything becomes an idol, from being taken from under the lordship of Jesus and being made a god in its own right, something that meets our needs, 
that gives us identity and meaning and importance in the world. I remember a preacher saying, the first time I said in a sermon to my congregation, in the Greek it says this, it was such a thrill. Well, okay, but what exactly was the thrill? Was it that if I tell them the Greek, they will be so much better equipped to love God and serve God? I hope so. Or was the thrill, wow, my people are going to be so impressed that I got my MDiv with honors at Wycliffe College, and now they see the fruits of that. If you like, is quoting the Greek going to be a window or a door? Is it a window through which they will see more of God and be drawn to God? Or is it a door slammed in their face and the only thing is me standing in front of the door? If the latter, then it's an idol. So what can we do with an idol? I promised you two shocking statements and maybe you've noticed you've only had one. The second one is this, that God can redeem idols make us stand up and dance, but please don't. By that I mean they can be restored to their proper place in God's created order. Whether it be our attitude to sex, or to material things, or to work, or to the academic study of theology. And how are they redeemed? When those who practice idolatry repent. Literally, they change their minds. Wow, I thought this would give my life meaning and purpose. But it doesn't. It's a leaky system. I realize now that only God can give me that joy that I was looking for. And we hand over that idol to the God who made it and who wants to remake it so that it is a blessing in our lives. If you like, we take the armor off of David and let him be himself. A perfectly capable, confident shepherd boy with stones and a sling who can actually kill giants. I suspect Jesus was thinking of Jeremiah when he talked about water. He says to the woman at the well, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you what? Living water. The same phrase as in Jeremiah. Everyone who drinks of this water, and he's talking about the water in the well, in Jeremiah's terms, the water that's likely to run out, the idol, everyone who drinks of that will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. This is why God is upset about our idolatry. It's not only because the idols are bad for us, although that grieves God but also because God makes something available to us that is so much better, this living water. And what is that living water? It is God himself. There's a place in C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian where Lucy and Susan are with Aslan the lion, who is the Christ figure, and they encounter Bacchus, the god of wine and fertility and theater, among other slightly dubious things. He is said to symbolize everything which is chaotic, dangerous, and unexpected, everything which escapes human reason. And he comes with a multitude of his followers. What's going to happen? Well, naturally, a wild party ensues. But Aslan is at the center. And when it's all over, Susan says, 
I wouldn't have felt safe with Bacchus and all his wild girls if we'd met them without Aslan. And Lucy replies, I should think not. And Lewis is expressing his deep conviction that everything in creation, including those things which we so easily turn into idols, everything finds its rightful place as something which can bring us life and blessing and joy, which is what God intends for those things, when it comes under the Lordship of Christ. Let's bring our lives, our idols, our potential idols to Jesus for him to rule over this day and every day so that he may give us his joy. Amen. Amen.